0: Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 19 this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible and the Pew Rack in front of you, you can find that on page 456. With Dr. Barkley being on study leave, we're of course pausing our series through Exodus. So in in doing so, I thought it would be appropriate, seeing as in Exodus we are in the Ten Commandments, to consider... Uh, what the psalmist says about God's revealing of himself, not only in the law of God, but in nature and, and how we respond thereto. So give your attention now to the reading of the word of God from Psalm 19, the entire psalm. To the choir master, the psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, Our Father and our God, our prayer is the same as David's was so many, many years ago. That the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, would we see you today as our rock and our redeemer. And we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. There's been an interesting cultural trend that's transpired over the last 15 to say 20 years. I've followed for a little while. It's the rise and arguably the fall of the New Atheist Movement. Now, if you're not familiar with the New Atheist Movement and what this is, it was a label for a particular movement, an intellectual school of a kind of atheist who was staunchly scientific and very avid in their atheism, was proselytizing their atheism, and was very distinctly and ferociously anti-religion, anti-spirituality, and especially anti-Christian, anti-church. There were four intellectuals who were considered the leaders of this movement, known as the four horsemen of the new atheists. One of them was the Oxford evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. In a 2015 interview with the firm Business Insider, Dawkins noted how the vast majority of scientists today, the vast majority of them, Do not believe in the existence of God. And in fact, really the burden of proof is on those who would want to claim that there is a God and that he made the world around us. The implication obviously seems to be that if you are the kind of person who closely studies the world around you and is really smart and really knows how the world works, then you couldn't possibly believe that there is a God. And looking at creation as we see it around us, the world as we see it, does not, absolutely, definitively cannot lead us to the conclusion that there is a creator God. Now, of course, the problem with this way of thinking is it flies directly in the face of Scripture. Romans chapter 1, verse 19, Paul, in talking about all humanity everywhere, says that what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. The problem is not that God has not revealed himself, the problem is that we do not respond properly to God's revelation of himself. God has given himself an abundant witness in the world and in his word. But the question for us is how will we as the people of God respond to that witness? David, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Psalm 19, exemplifies for us how we respond to God's revelation of himself and of ourselves. We see this in three parts. First, in verses 1 through 6, David shows us our response to general revelation. And then in verses 7 through 11, he moves on and shows us our response to special revelation. And then lastly, in verses 12 and 14, in light of those two things, our response to the revelation of ourselves. So first, consider uh, verses 1 through 6, our response to general revelation. And now when we talk about general revelation, when you you hear this theological phrase, what, what this means is God's general revealing of himself to all peoples everywhere. No matter where they are, no matter who they are, all people have some kind of revelation of God. And that revelation comes through the world around us. Everything in the world around us screams that there is a God and that he has made us. David understands this. And in particular, he meditates on how the sky reveals God to us. I think anyone who's ever seen a a dark night sky without light pollution can agree with David that it's a wonderful sight. You can understand why he may want to meditate on this particular aspect of creation. There's really few things in the world that are more beautiful than a dark night sky. To to look up and to see just a, a vast black dome above you that is just peppered with countless little white dots or seeing the Milky Way stretch across your view and shooting stars, feeling your own smallness. Seeing how grand, how awesome, how beautiful the sky is that God has made. You look up and, and you can't help but think that something this grand, something this beautiful, this majestic must have an even more beautiful, an even more powerful creator behind it. If you were to walk around, say, in a, in a building, even like one like ours, and you saw a piece of artwork hanging on the wall, you, you could tell a lot about who was behind that piece of artwork by looking at that artwork. You would look at it, And you would see all the colors and the way everything is formed and put together with wisdom and with skill. And you would know that this didn't just appear. The paintings don't just pop up out of the ground. They don't just appear like that randomly. No, there's got to be someone behind it. And that someone has got to have the capability to make something like that. The talent to make something like that. You can even tell that they have an appreciation for beauty. You may have an idea of the sort of things they enjoy. And in the same way, when we look at the sky and we look at the world around us, we know that there must have been a God who made it all. There is someone who put it there. That's exactly what David is meditating on in verses 1 through 6 of this psalm. He's meditating on how God reveals himself in the sky. And he he thinks about the sky and he thinks about the way that God has given this witness to himself and he turns it and he looks at it from different angles and thinks about all the different ways that God reveals himself in the night sky and even in the daytime. The first thing we see is that he... He sees an, a universal witness. Verse 2 says, Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's this universal, constant, undeniable witness that God gives himself. Verse 3, There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is a constant witness of God to himself. Every moment of every day, God is telling Himself, telling us that he is out there, that he has created this world. From the moment that that sun rises to the moment it drops below the horizon, it is telling us that there is a great and glorious and radiant God behind it all. When you look up at the night sky, when you see the moon glowing, when you see the stars and the constellations and how it all moves and is ordered and how beautiful and wonderful it is, you know every moment that you are looking up that there is a God who made it all. It is a constant witness. It is a constant witness, but furthermore, it is an undeniable witness. Verse three again says, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. On the day of judgment, when God gathers all peoples to himself and sets up the judgment throne and judges the nations, there will not be a single soul who has ever lived who will be able to say, God, I'm sorry, I don't speak your language. I didn't understand what you were, you were saying. Why, why did you go at such pains to hide yourself? It was, it was jarbled. It was lost in translation. Nobody can say that. There is no speech. There is no language that does not hear the voice of the heavens. It's not as if God put this small little whisper in a corner that said maybe there's a God out there. Somewhere, No, God's witness to himself in the heavens. It's a flashing, screaming neon sign that says God is here, that God has made us, and God will one day judge us. It's a constant witness. It's an undeniable witness. Furthermore, verse 4 says that it is a universal witness. Their voice goes out through all the earth. In their words, to the ends of the world, there is not a single corner of this earth, there is not a single person living in the most remote place that you can possibly imagine who has not seen God's witness to himself. It is constant. It is undeniable. It is universal that there is a creator God and that we are his creatures, that we are accountable to this creator, God. Now, how do we respond to that? What do we do? Why does God give us this revelation of himself in the creation? Does he do it just for a point of information, just so you can understand a little bit more of how things work behind the scenes? No, he gives us this revelation of himself in the creation so that we would worship, so that we would worship him. That's exactly what David is doing here in Psalm 19. The mere fact that this psalm exists is a witness to the fact that David looks up at the sky and he responds in worship. He prays, he meditates, he writes out his prayer. It most likely, knowing how the Psalms were treated in ancient Israel, was most likely put to some kind of music or chant and even sung. David is responding in worship to the God who made it all. If you came across that same hypothetical piece of artwork that we talked about before, and you were standing there and you were looking at this brilliant work of art, and then you looked over and you realized that the artist was standing there right next to you, you wouldn't just ignore him. You would look at this painting and you would see how wonderful, how great it is, but then you know the instinct is to turn and to look and to say, Thank you. Thank you for painting this piece of art. You are so talented. You're so wonderful. This is an amazing thing. And in the same way, when we look at all that God has created, we are led to worship. But God didn't just make a painting. God created a world. He spoke And the sun was put in the sky. And he began running its course like a strong man with joy. His word went forth and the dry land appeared, and the plants. And it was populated with birds and fish and with animals. And he formed man of dust of the ground and the woman out of the rib of the man. And he gave them living souls and breathed into them the breath of life all by a word, all out of nothing, all done by our creator God, all done by a God who is worthy of our worship, who is worthy of our every thought, word, and deed, who is worthy of all of our love with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is why we gather Sunday after Sunday. This isn't just tradition This isn't just convenient. It's not just a fellowship, a nice little social time. No, we gather because we gather to worship. Because we have a God who's worth worshiping week in, week out, every Lord's Day, morning and evening. Gathering to worship our creator God. And what a great creator God he is. David doesn't stop at just the general revelation that we get from God in creation. He moves on as well to consider God's special revelation. God's special revelation. This is the word of God. David uses a number of of phrases in here. He talks about the law of God, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, and so on and so forth. All of it essentially is the word of God, which for David was the Old Testament as he added in, in his day up to his day. For us, it is the Bible, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, God specially revealing himself. General revelation can only take you so far. It can tell you general things about God. It can tell you that he exists. It can tell you that he is wise, that he is good, that he is powerful. And these kinds of things, it can tell you that you are accountable to that creator God. But general revelation can only take you so far. It can't tell you other particular things. If you are looking at a masterpiece painting like, say, Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night... You could, again, tell a lot about Van Gogh just by looking at that painting. You would know that there was someone who painted it, that they appreciated things like Starry Nights or even the way that they pictured the world and thought about beauty and thought about truth and goodness and these sorts of things. But there's so many things you wouldn't know about the painter. You wouldn't know, just by looking at the painting, his name. You wouldn't know his voice. You wouldn't know his personality, his favorite food, his hobbies, what he was like. But if somebody put in your hand a Van Gogh autobiography, then you begin to know the man behind the painting. You begin to know him in a really particular, personal, special way. And in the same way, we need the word of God to take us beyond the general things that general revelation can tell us. We can look out at the world around us and know much about God, but we can't know things like that he is Trinity. We can't know that he is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can't know the ways that he's worked throughout redemptive history to save a people for himself. We can't know the gospel of his Son, Jesus Christ. We need something else. We need special revelation. And just as the the author of a book may bleed through in their writing, so too David sees here how God himself bleeds through, as it were, into his word itself. Look again at verse 7. It says that the law of the Lord, the word of God, that is, it is perfect. It is not lacking anything. It has all that it needs. It is sufficient. It is perfect. It is whole. Furthermore, the testimony of the Lord, it is sure, it is supremely reliable, it is supremely trustworthy. There is nothing more sure in this world than the word of God. Verse 8, David goes on, he talks about the precepts of the Lord, which are right, that is they are righteous, they are upright, they are perfectly good and just The commandment of the Lord, it is pure. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean. It has no impurities, no spots, no blemishes, nothing that would make you recoil. It's incorruptible, as it were. It's enduring forever. The rules of the Lord, they are true, and they are righteous altogether. And in a world like ours that is full of half-truths and misinformation and moral corruption, we have something that is true and righteous altogether, and that is the Word of God. But the Word of God isn't just a beautiful dead instrument. It's not like that perfect piece of china you keep on the top shelf and you never actually touch it and it never comes down and does anything. It just sits up there and looks pretty. Know the word of God. It is living. It is active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It is powerful as it works. It does wonderful, marvelous things. David says it revives the soul. Do you need your soul revived this morning? Are you weary? Are you faint? Are you straying from God? There is a way to revive your soul, and it is through the word of God. The word of God gives us wisdom. It gives wisdom to the simple. It rejoices the heart, verse 8 says. It enlightens the eyes. It is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. Have you ever had the experience of having a very exciting piece of news that you wanted to share with someone? Maybe it was a new job that you desperately needed or a healthy diagnosis when you were worried or the birth of a new child or, or something along these lines and, and you go to tell someone that exciting piece of news but then they sort of respond indifferently. They, they don't get as excited as you think they would. What, what do you do in that moment? You, you feel a little of offended, don't you? You you think, what, what are you doing? I have this exciting piece of news. This wonderful thing has just happened. Why aren't you excited? We instinctively understand that there's some things in this world that are so wonderful, they're so good and exciting, that we ought to respond to those things with excitement, with, with joy. And in the same way, there is a response that the word of God demands from us. If God's word really is all these things that David says it is, if it is true and perfect and just, and if it does all of these things it says it does, if it enlightens the eyes, if it gives wisdom to the simple, if it revives the soul, then you cannot be indifferent to it. You cannot be indifferent to the word of God. There is a response to the word of God, God's special revelation, that is demanded by its very nature, by what it is and what it does. And David, again, shows us how we respond to the word of God. Look again, verses 10 and 11. He says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey. And drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, buy them as your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. The Word of God is more to be desired than gold. The way that the world longs to get rich to win the lottery, to save up for retirement, to build up that nest egg, to have everything, to have the riches that this life can offer, even more than that, the people of God ought to long for the word of God. The word of God ought to be on our lips, in our conversations, filling our minds, reading the word of God, ought to be something we look forward to day in and day out. Sitting under the preaching of the word of God, Lord's day after Lord's day, morning and evening, ought to be something that is the highlight of our week. And I say this, David says this, not just to make us feel guilty because... We're we're behind on our quiet time, or we, we're not really getting through our read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year plan like we expected it to. No, he puts it here to remind us, not just that it ought to be a delight to us, but that it is a delight. It's not just rote duty, it's a joy. The word of God is sweeter than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. That's not just a possibility, that's a promise. David isn't just talking about personal preferences here. He's not just saying, well, you know, some people like this kind of food, but I like that kind of food, and this is my favorite, and I think maybe if you just try it, you'll get used to it. No, this is a statement about reality. This is a statement about what's inherently true, that the word of God is sweeter than honey, that it is more to be desired than gold, that in keeping it, there is great reward. The word of God is not a matter of personal preference. It is in itself a delight. Don't believe the lies of the world that tell you otherwise. The world and the flesh, they want to tell you that you have more exciting things to do than to meditate on scripture and to turn it in your head and digest it and really come to know it. The world wants to tell you That when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place and when following the word of God and obeying his commandments seems difficult or inconvenient, that it's really best to just pretend it's not there and to go on with what's easiest. It's all a lie. Don't believe any of it. The word of God is rewarding. It is sweet. It is a delight. If it is not, the problem is not the word itself. The problem is in our faulty palates. People of God... This word is sweeter than honey, more to be desired than gold, an absolute delight. So we've seen David meditating on the general revelation of God. We've seen him meditating on the special revelation of God. But now lastly, we see him do something else. We see David turn inward. And he looks at himself, and this is an appropriate move to make. John Calvin, in his magnum opus, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, famously begins by noting that the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves are connected together by many ties. We who bear God's image naturally resemble God. So when we look at God and we meditate on God and his word, it's very natural to turn in and look at ourselves and to ask about ourselves in light of how God has revealed himself in creation and in his word. But know what David doesn't do here. What David doesn't do is he doesn't turn inward and then go on a journey of self-discovery. He doesn't go on to take the Myers-Briggs test. He doesn't get his nice self-esteem boost. And he certainly doesn't realize what a good guy he actually is. No, he looks in on himself and in light of the glory of God revealed in the world around him and in the word, he asks a question. Who can discern his errors? Who, in the light of the perfection of God Almighty, can truly plumb the depths of their own sin? Who, in light of the perfection demanded by the law of God, can really understand all the ways that we sin against God day in and day out, all the ways that we fall short of the glory of God? There's two types of sin that David notes here. He notes in verse 13, presumptuous sins. These are the kinds of things that we do that we know we ought not to do. Or the things that we know that we ought to do, but we leave them undone. They're presumptuous sins. They're willful sins. These are bad enough. But David knows his situation is even worse than that. He notes in verse 12 that there are also hidden faults. That there are ways that we sin against God that we don't even realize. And we're guilty of both of these things. Sins we know we have done, and even those things that we don't even realize we have done. The commentator Matthew Henry, when, in his comments on this psalm, notes that all of our prayers of confession of sin ought to end with the word, etc. Because we never really come to understand the full depth of our own sin. So faced with a bleak situation like this, what does David do? He doesn't despair. No, he prays. He prays. He says, "Lord, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep your servant back from presumptuous sins; let them not have dominion over me." David prays like the like the tax collector in the parable of the Pharisee of the tax collector, Luke 18. The tax collector won't even lift his eyes to heaven and he just beats his chest and he says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And God was merciful to him. And God was merciful to David. And God forgave David. And David could find rest in God's forgiveness. We know that because he doesn't end this psalm in desperation. He ends it by noting that God was to him a rock and a redeemer. Are you resting in God's forgiveness this morning? Are you resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross? And I don't just mean, has God taken you and made you his own? Maybe there are some here today that this sounds completely foreign, and if that is you, then I beg of you, make today the day Pray that God would forgive you of your sin through Jesus Christ. But this isn't just a one-time thing. This is a way of life for the Christian. The way of repentance, the way of resting in the grace of God is the way we live. Because when Jesus went to the cross and when he pronounced, it is finished, he didn't mean, my part is done, now it's your turn to go on and to do your part by always doubting and always being unsure if you're going to be saved and always not being careful and, and really kind of worrying if you've done enough or if God really has forgiven you. No, when Jesus went to the cross and said, it is finished, he meant, it is finished. The work is done. The people of God no longer have any doubts that they need carry with them. No works they need do. No, ours is to rest. Ours is to come to the one who says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest in the constant forgiveness and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that was accomplished on a cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. Because God didn't send his son into the world. He didn't send Jesus so that we could live in doubt or that he could only make possible a way of salvation. No, he sent him to be a rock and a redeemer. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're grateful for the work of our Lord Jesus Christ which helps us look on your revelation and respond not in terror at your perfection in our sin but in worship and in rest. Lord, would you give us that rest in the grace of Jesus Christ. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.